the first four commandments are related to our relationship with God and how the last six are related to how we interact with each other. The first two commandments clearly establish that God should be our, prior, our top priority as he sits on the throne of our hearts and lives. This week as we pick up on the third commandment, we receive instructions on how to keep the Lord in his rightful place of preeminence as we wrestle with our flesh and our message today titled, again, the commandments of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to bring this message. God, thank you for uh, speaking to my heart. I prayed uh, diligently, Lord, asking you to speak to me, and God, you have, and I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, this is not about me. Uh, Lord, this, no one's here to hear me. They're here to hear you, and God, I pray that I not make any part of this message about myself, and Lord, this be 100% the Spirit of God. Help me to disappear that you might appear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter number 20. We're going to be verses 7 through 12 today. First verse, verse number 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not, will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. This is our third commandment. So when we consider the name of God, okay, the name of God. We think of a few names that come right away. Father, Jesus, Lord, God, Jehovah, things of that nature, okay? So it is obviously referencing those. But what about other names that God is called by, like Mother Nature, uh, the universe, right? Or it's my spirit animal, right? There's all these different things that are somehow tied to it. What does it mean to take something in vain? Vain actually means when it's actually, uh, or the meaning of it is empty or devoid of truth. That's what vain means. So what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? There are three main ways or that this commandment is disobeyed. First is through profanity, using the name of God in the form of a blasphemy or as a curse, right? Somebody will say, somebody walks in the room and all of a sudden you hear our Lord's name called out. Jesus, right? But they won't say it in a way they're giving reverence to God. They'll use it almost as if they are cursing, right? Then we think about frivolity. This is the second way that it's used. Using the name of God in a superficial or a frivolous way. You get a brand new car. Oh my! Does that sound familiar to any of us? Yeah. We hear it all the time, right? And then we hear things like what I was talking about with the, the aspect of using it as a curse. You know, the GD that we hear in, on TV. The fact that that has become acceptable on television is unbelievable to me. Isn't that one as a Christian? Doesn't that one just cut you to your heart when you hear somebody say that? Oh, my goodness gracious. Using God, our beautiful God's name, as a curse and then using it frivolously. And the last way is hypocrisy. Through hypocrisy. Claiming the name of God while engaging in behavior that is contrary to him or attributing his power to something that is not him. This would include things like false religions, heresies, folks like the Jehovah's False Witnesses, or the Mormons, or the Muslims, or any other cult that's going to use God's name, but in actuality, not talking about God. Where idolatry is physically discrediting God through worshiping something else above him, taking the Lord's name is discrediting God verbally. It's the same kind of attack on God's sovereignty. This can even be when the, when the work of God is attributed to anything other than him. In Mark 3.22, this is a, after Jesus has done some miracles, it says, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub. Beelzebub is uh, translated as the, um, I can't think of it right now, but I'll come to it. It'll probably pop up in a minute. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. So there he's saying that what you're doing is being done by the devil, not by God. That's another version of taking God's name in vain. The example of this concept, Christine and I, we were walking and we met this guy as we were walking and his name was Mark and he was doing some work and I started talking to him about the Lord and, and as we're chatting, he goes, he goes, oh man, I wish I had more time to talk to you. Because you know, Allah, Buddha, everybody, they're all right. That's the cool thing. They're all right. Everybody's right. I'm like, 
Okay, that is so wrong. You are so wrong, so wrong, so wrong. <laughs> but it's amazing, that mindset, and that again is taking God's name in vain. It's simply discrediting or taking it, removing it from the truth. Romans 1.25 explains how it happens. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is blasphemy. Blasphemy is exactly what it is. And guess what? It goes hand in hand with taking the Lord's name in vain. Jesus reinforces this truth and the model prayer in Matthew 6. He says this in Matthew 6, 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Reverenced, reverence that name. God's identity in whatever form it takes should be reverenced above anything else on the earth. But if it's not, notice the last part of that verse says, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Okay, so we're all accountable to God. And guess what? He doesn't miss a thing. He sees it all. Okay, so he is a righteous judge, a righteous judge, meaning he is going to do things that are proper and that is right. So he's going to hold us accountable for what we do, not what we don't do. But everything that we do, he holds us accountable for it. So we think about that. Oh, my goodness. I've got some things in my past. I've got some things in my future. I've got some things I said in the car. We're dealing with that. What do we do when we mess up? How do we make things right? How do I get, uh, how do I get this, uh, my, my issues between me and God? How do I deal with them? What if we've fallen into sin and because of it, every time we call upon the name of the Lord, it is in vain because our life is in opposition to God? How do we make things right between us and God when we fail? The good news is the Bible is full of all kinds of awesome promises. We claim the promises of God, and guess what? Every one of those promises is motivated by love, by mercy, and grace, the nature of God. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here we are, this filthy dirty individual, and all we have to do is turn to God, confess our sins. If we will humble ourselves before God, admit our sin, repent of it, and ask for forgiveness, we will not only be forgiven, but cleansed and made righteous in the eyes of God. So when he looks at us, he no longer sees our sin. He sees the blood of his son. If he wrote your sin all in red, and we had a scroll that written every sin you'd ever committed, some of us, we would roll past Charlotte, man. We'd be on way on out there, right? <laughs> Well, let's say you take blood and you pour it over because the writing's all written in red. The Bible says it's written in crimson. So if the sin is written in red and you pour red blood over it, what do you see? Just the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the righteousness of God applied to our sin debt, paying it with that perfect righteous blood. Now, God is so much better to us than we deserve, obviously, and the fact that he's willing to forgive us as wicked as many times we are. Verse number eight says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is our fourth commandment. So the word Sabbath is from the Hebrew word, which is Sabbat. Sabbat. And that word means rest. Okay? So for the Jews, the Sabbath, or Sabbat, was going to be on Saturday, according to their calendar. Now, but for us, guess what? We do it on Sunday. Why is that? Let me tell you why. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. This is a description of salvation. 
All you that were dead in your sins, we're dead in our sins, on our way to hell, uncircumcision of our flesh, we're living in these fleshly bodies. He quickeneth together, quickeneth means bring to life, bringeth together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So all of you that are born again, that's who Paul's addressing here in, Second Col in Colossians 2, 13. He says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. When you see the word ordinances, that means it's talking about the law, okay? He says, blotting out, blotting out means to erase or to cover up. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, basically, blotting out the law that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, and this is talking about Jesus, nailing it to the cross, nullifying the power of the law over us. Verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus brought an end to the age of the law and introduced us into an age of grace. Verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of any of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath. He says, look, you're not held to what they were held to. That was a rule for the Jews. This is a new age, so these, these things that were significant for them are not significant for you. And what happens is the same principle, the important thing that we're looking at here is not the fact that it's a, it's a Sabbath that it's Saturday, it's the day of rest. It is the fact that rest, that Sabbath, Sabbat is talking about rest, it's the day itself. We're not bound to the restrictions or the ordinances of the law. Because of this, as Christians, we sanctify Sunday. The reason why we sanctify Sunday is this is the day that Jesus Christ was resurrected. Our victory in the, in the battle against sin was not won on the cross. It was won at the tomb because that was the proof that God had accepted the payment that Jesus made on the cross. That's where the victory takes place. So when we meet on Sundays, we're celebrating that truth, which is awesome. Now, um, because of this, as I said, we take the Sunday uh, as the day. But Sunday, in the old days, when I was a kid, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, everything was closed on Sundays. I mean, everything. You go downtown, it was like Sears was closed. Everything was closed. You're just like, wow, this is crazy. And then what happens is, and that was true around the world. I mean, I'm telling you, you go all over Europe, wherever you want to go, that was true all over the place. The Sabbath, that Sunday, was sanctified, and it was set apart for God. And then what happened was big businesses were like, you know what, we're losing profits. And we got to figure out a way to get things moving here. And we can pick up a whole other day of commerce. And what happened was big business changed things. And we went to a seven-day week, work week. And then we've gone now to 24 hours, seven days a week. I mean, goodness gracious, you go to Walmart. You can go to Walmart at 3 o'clock in the morning. And guess what? There's people in there going, hey there, how are you? <laughs> Hey there. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, right? So now we have people staying up all night long to work, and they're working on Sundays. There's been a drastic change, okay? So the concept of rest is not, not only biblical, but it is practical as well as God will introduce into farming and other aspects of life. As we go further in the Bible, we're going to see God introduce that same principle, the Sabbath, in other parts. Now, continuing in that Colossians 2, where we were in 2.13, and we talked about uh, let no man be a judge, we're going to pick up, there's a little prophetic thing popped here in the very last verse in 2 Colossians, it's verse uh, 17, it says, which are, and it's referencing the law, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Being saying, the ordinances of the law, guess what they're doing? They're pointing to the future. There's a principle that's being taught in the future, prophetically, in the Ten Commandments. And the entire Bible... When you understand this, the entire Bible is pointing towards one moment. It's pointing to one specific event. It's all pointing to the very same thing, which is the return of Jesus Christ. It's about the day when he shall return. Many times you see it in the Bible, it's called the Lord's Day. So as you look at the Sabbath, we will also see that it too, the Sabbath, is also pointing 
to that same day, and I'm going to show it to you right here. Number, chapter, verse number 9 says, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Now, if we look at this and it says, but the seventh day, so we have a day, is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Could we call that the day of the Lord? Couldn't we? Yeah. So we can see the day of the Lord and the Sabbath there. In it, and it says, in it thou shalt not, not do any work, thou, nor thy, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, and thy maidservant, nor thy, thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within, within thy gates. Everyone will get rest. Now understand, during this time, this is a revolutionary concept that no matter who you were, because traditionally it would just be the men would get a day off, but certainly not the women, certainly not the servants, certainly not the cattle, for goodness sakes. God goes across the board and says, look, I'm going to reverence everyone. In this. I'm respecting everyone and helping every one of these people are going to have this opportunity to take a rest because it's not about them. It's actually about me. God is an equal opportunity blesser. And I know blesser is not necessarily a word, but it fits there, so we're just going to work with it. And now in verse number 11, he goes a little bit further. He now ties in the creation story. Notice this in verse number 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay? So about three or four weeks back, we discussed this principle. There's something really, really neat about the word day in the Bible. There's something really, really neat about it. We're going to look at it a little bit further. Second Peter reveals to us there's an unusual and supernatural uh, nature to this word, okay? And what I want you to do is, as I read these verses, I want you to pay attention to the context, okay? Context means the theme of reference, the subject matter that we're talking about in this 2 Peter verse, okay? It says in 2 Peter 3, verses 7 through 10, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This is pointing to the return of God. Verse number 8, But beloved... Okay, in reference to that concept of talking about the future, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Okay, he's very specific. He says, look, if you don't, if you miss everything else, get this. He says here, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And as we looked at a few weeks back, so what God is saying, look, one day to me is equivalent to a thousand years. Okay, he's giving us a, a formula to work from. So six days they're going to work, and on the seventh day they're going to rest. Verse number nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the heart of God. Verse 10, notice the wording. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, the works that are therein, shall be burned up. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So we take that same formula, right? In that same context of understanding it's talking about the Lord's day. And now we apply it to the Sabbath, okay? Check this out. Genesis chapter, chapter 1, God took us into creation. We see a pattern that's repeated six times each day of the creation. It's over and over and over again. And that pattern is this. And the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and morning were the third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, okay? So check this out. But on the seventh day, things are going to change. We know that God is a God of order. We see that in creation. We see that in the Bible. Genesis 2, chapter, verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that, it is, because that in it he had rest, rested from all his work, which God created and made. 
There is no morning and there is no evening. It's not listed in the scripture. This day was blessed by God. This day was sanctified by God. This day was a day of rest. And it is unusual and it is different from all the other days for a very specific purpose. It's pointing us to the future, pointing us to the future. So when we look at the six-day creation story and apply our formula, the six days, we see here six days that are equivalent to, God's from God's perspective, 6,000 years, right? So we have a six-day period that he's talking about, and if we use our formula, that a day is 1,000 years and 1,000 years a day, we can see a 6,000-year period, okay? So these six days or 6,000 years will be culminated on a seventh day, the day of rest, right? If we take the same formula, a 7,000th year. Looking at the biblical record from Genesis to Malachi, guess what you figure out? That back in the Old Testament, you got about 4,000 years, okay? So then if we go and we take the New Testament and we apply it and we deduce where we are today, in 2019, we're about 2,000 years down the road. So that's 6,000 years, isn't it? Human history, we're looking at about 6,000 years. So as that totals up to 6,000 years, and we relate to the creation story, as God does in verse number 11, then we've got a day of rest that's coming. Remember? And 2 Peter 3 is talking about the return of the Lord. He's talking about the Lord's day. Revelation 20 verse 2 says this, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Revelations 20 verses 1 through 7 tell us about a time of peace upon this earth that will be for a thousand years, a time of peace, a time of rest for a thousand years. Revelations 20, verse 6 says this, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in his resurrection, the rapture. This first resurrection, when you see that listed any time, that when it says the first resurrection, that is talking about the rapture of the church. That's when you and I as born-again believers are called up in an instant and we meet God in the air. So he says, Blessed and holy is he that hath a part in the first resurrection, those that are raptured, those children of God. On such the second death have no power. The second death, we see that in Revelations 20, verse 14. It's talking about this, that, that second death. It's talking about death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. He's saying, look, you and I, we're not going to face hell because guess what? We're born again believers. Praise God. And it says here, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. It's not a coincidence. God does everything for a purpose and on purpose. When we're looking at the Sabbath, we're seeing something bigger than what we think we see. It will be a time of peace upon the earth. It will be a day of rest. The last two words of that verse say, and hallowed it. The word hallowed means to honor as holy. We're not just honoring God's commands when we set aside Sunday for worship in church. We're not. When you and I reverence the Sabbath, guess what we're doing? We're celebrating the return of our king, man. We're reverencing God for what he's going to do for us. He's promised he's coming, and guess what? He is coming, and there is that day coming, a day of rest that's going to come upon this earth, and it's going to change things. But see what happens if our life is all about us. Well, guess what Sunday is? Another day to sleep in. Caught up on chores. Watch some TV. Get caught up on Facebook. Or, if we feel up to it, go to church. There are people that should be here today that aren't here. They're sitting at home. Because they made an excuse that they were willing to sell themselves and they believed it. And what it comes down to is this. 
if I show up on church and I realize the fact that what it is is I'm reverencing my king and all that he's done for me and all that God's is made provided for me and all the things that work that God has done in my salvation and his promises and I hold on to those promises, I go through life and I deal with adversity and I can turn to him. When I come on Sunday and I reverence this day, what I'm doing is I'm saying, look, I want you to know that I love you. Amen. And you asked me to do this and I'm doing it because my life's not about me. If my life is about me, I will be at home. If my life is about him, guess what? I'll be here. If God makes it available, the Bible says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's a purpose to us coming together. Not only do we learn, not only do we grow, but it's also a fellowship. There's a, there's a unity to it. God designed the church, and he started that in the book of Acts. We will be uh, now moving from here. We're going to move into the commandments that are going to be. So we've dealt with those four. That's our, our interactions with God, the first four commandments. We're shifting now, and it's going to be the commandments. The rest of the commandments are all going to be about how we interact with one another, okay? So now we're going to pick up on our fifth commandment, verse number 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Okay? So the Lord addresses this subject that is crucial to the fabric of our society. It is extremely, extremely important. Learning to respect one's parents translates into understanding how to respect others. It is this respect for parents that should be established with children in the home that allows them to understand societal rules and, more importantly, how to reverence God. Okay? And there's been a serious detriment in our country in that area. Proverbs 22.6 says this, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not, not depart from it. Unfortunately, because a majority of people don't know their biblical responsibility as parents, we see a massive societal decline in respect of parents, in respect of the elderly, yes. and respect of God. Yes. Can we not look in our society and see it? Amen. It's so evident. Go back when they took the Bible out of the schools. You're not supposed to pray anymore. You're not supposed to teach biblical principles. God forbid we should teach people to reverence one another. God forbid we should teach children to reverence their parents and respect them as they should. But there's something societally that, that happens when you don't do that, and it causes a degradation and destruction in the structure that God designed. The concept of being our kids' friends first and our parents and being parents second does not work. Right. We must first be their parent, establishing boundaries and respect for authority. Right. The result of that not being done. Who's ever, I, YouTube, right? There's a, who's ever seen uh, Linda? Linda, Linda, was it? Uh, Linda, look it. Linda, look it. It's a little boy. He's probably three. Has anybody seen that video before? Linda, look it. Okay, most, okay. So I was going to show it, but I forgot to pop it up for you. So actually, I would have told my wife, and she would have made it work. But, you know, I don't. Anyway, but this, whole, this video is this little boy. The perspective is from the mom, and he's like way down here, this little bitty kid. And she's going, I don't think you're listening to me. And he's like, I don't think you're listening to me. I mean, and it's like, oh, it's cute and funny because he's three, but it is so disrespectful. It is unbelievable. I mean, you just want to be like, dude, I'm going to. Step in that screen, bro. You know what you need. <laughs> well, pow, you know, a little bit of an encouragement, right? And you know what? It's like bottom lines. The one thing is, you know, discipline is a part of life. You know, you go through life. You can't just live footloose and fancy free and do what you want because people like Patrick will come take you to jail, right? <laughs> That's just the way it works, right? Society has rules, and guess what? We need to have rules in our house. Amen. Amen. Preach it. Hebrews. 12, verses 5 through 11. Check this out, okay? 
He says, And we have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Chastening means God is on you. He's, 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 he's drawing you. He's, he's putting pressure on you. He says, Nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For when the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So for whom the Lord, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he that whom the father chasteneth not? He says, how can a father care for his child and not be willing to, to, to follow after them, not be willing to rebuke them and correct them? That's not a picture of love. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards. He says, look, you're not the children of God. You're lost people. If God's not chastening you, you're not, you're not his. And he says, and not sons. First, verse number nine. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Okay? So we reverence our fathers. It says, shall we not much rather be in subject unto the father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Notice this. This is saying, look, this is dads that are chastening or punishing in the wrong way. They're doing it to please themselves, not to help their children. But notice what it says about God. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Correction, not about punishment, it's about correction. Verse number 11, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Look, nobody wants to be punished, right? But grievous, it's hard, man. Being corrected, being, having God's pressure put upon you, it's hard. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Those that are corrected, if they allow it to correct them, guess what? They will receive peace in their life. You want to find somebody miserable? Find somebody fighting against the chastisement of God. If you are a born-again child of God and you are running from him, it is merciless. He does not back off. He does not give up. And that weight just gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And it's not until you give in and you finally let God change you that that peace can come into your life. Otherwise, you're a tortured soul. Because you know what you should do, but you choose not to do it, and you live with the results, and you try to tell yourself, it's okay, I'm going to enjoy the moment, but it never lasts long enough. Guess what? Sin always pays a price. You may enjoy it in the moment, but the Bible says it's only pleasurable for a season. And that chastisement will rest upon you. Now, this is true for both mothers and fathers, but I'm going to focus more on fathers today, okay? Um, do you think that it's a coincidence that God refers to himself as father. Of course not, because God understands the important role a father plays, and crucially, crucially important role to the success of his children. Now, understand, if you're a single mom, you are a superhero. You are unbelievable, because you are taking on both roles. I'm not in any way discrediting you, but God's design is that there be a mother and a father in that home. The father's role is to model the attributes of God to his family as a protector, a provider, a teacher, a disciplinarian, and a guide. Ephesians 6 forces this, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That means raise them up to love and reverence God. That is your job. A father's motivation in fulfilling his role should always be love. should always be love. If you're raised in a home like I was raised, I wasn't raised with love as the motivation. I was raised with rage as the, as, the, as the answer, right? And so some of us come from that kind of mindset, and it's hard because it's our job to break the pattern, right? If, you're, if the response is always, if you made a mistake, you were pummeled mercilessly, 
and yelled at and made ridiculed, that doesn't make you, that's not correction, that's punishment, that's evil, right? And what he's saying, what I'm trying to tell you is this, your motivation must always be love. That's always got to be the intention of our heart because that's the way God does it. If discipline is ever, ne is ever necessary, we should never discipline in anger. If you're mad and you've got to discipline your child, step away. Don't get caught up in your emotions. Because remember, you're teaching them in everything that you do. If you lose your temper and go flying in there and boom, rah, and you rage on them, instead of taking time to think, you're hurting your child. You're abusing your child. Now, if they do something wrong and you sit down with them and you say, look, I want you to go in the other room. You think about what happened. You think about it. And you go in the other room and you think about it and you pray. Lord, you know what? Help me to allow, allow me to handle this the best way I possibly can. Help this to be a teaching moment for him or for her and help me to do it the right way. Help me to go in with the right heart, right? So then we go back in and we sit down. Hey, Billy. Hey, Dad. Okay, Billy, why did I send you in here? Because I, 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 I told you I did my homework, but I didn't do it. Okay, all right. So did you lie? I did, uh, yeah. Okay, who made the choice to lie? Me. Is, is lying good or bad? Bad. Okay. So when you do something bad, should I just ignore it or should I do something about it? There's something about it. Right? Right? Oh, here it comes. Right? As your father, my role is to help you learn what's wrong and what's right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, do I want to do it or did you make me do it? I mean you. <laughs> you're right. So we're going to do this, and you're going to get a couple of licks, and I want you to learn from these licks that I don't want to do this. And if it was up to me in my flesh, I would not. But because I know I'm responsible to God, I'm going to. Not because I don't love you, but because I love you. You understand that? Uh-huh. All right, let's get it done. And when it's done, what do we do? Let them work it out, deal with the emotions of it. Who caused this to happen? Me. Did I want to do it? No. Did you, did you make me do it? Yes. <laughs> and you know what? I love you. I love you. Come here. Come here. It's all done. That's how we do it. That's how you do it. That's a biblical way. Amen. Our goal is always correction and restoration, not punishment or vengeance. Listen to how the Lord speaks to his people. These are rebellious people right here God's getting ready to speak to in Jeremiah 29. Listen to this. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 13. This is God speaking to them. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work, my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Notice this. He says, when it's accomplished, they're punished. That 70 years is their punishment. He doesn't hold back the punishment. He allows it to go through. But he says, look, I want you to know this. When you're done, when we're done with the punishment, guess what I'm going to do? For verse number 11, for I know the thoughts that I, that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. Once this is done, man, I'm telling you, that relations can be restored. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search, with, for, for, search for me with, your, with all your heart. A God of restoration. His whole purpose for what he does is to help us to become who we're supposed to be. He's instructed us, but our problem is we have a hard time listening to instructions. Anybody else? Amen. Tell you, man, rebellion is a part of who we are, unfortunately. 
We listen to the patience, the forgiveness, and love of God as he displays to these rebellious children. As parents, we are given the blessing of establishing our children's understanding and reverence for God by teaching them how to be respectful. This respect begins with us. We've got to establish children that have respect with them. We do this by, their, by example. We do this by, 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 by other things as well, like the way we talk and the way we deal with other people, right? Consider this. Like I said, we're always teaching. We're always teaching in some manner or method. So when you're speaking to your spouse, guess what you're doing? You're teaching your children. When you're in traffic or you're dealing with somebody in a store and you're rude and you're un ungrateful or you're unkind, guess what you're doing? You're teaching your children. Every time we open our mouths or do a deed, we're teaching our children. And God holds us accountable to get them to reverence him and to reverence others and to reverence us. They're always learning. If we're not careful and deliberate in how we lead them in word and deed, things can go very wrong. Colossians 3, verse 21 says this, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Who's ever seen somebody discouraged? Really discouraged. They like motivation, self-confidence, drive, self-esteem, and personal value. They think that the world is better off without them. They're discouraged. In the cities around this country, we can travel all over. And you can find these discouraged, broken shells of humanity in prisons in any city in the country. And you can find them walking on the streets. You can see them rebellious in gangs, looking for a way to gain respect in the world. They're angry at everybody in the world, and they don't even know why they're mad. Because that, that discouragement, man, discouragement. Or they're so broken that they've given up on life, and they literally just exist. There's some of us maybe that are in those situations sometimes in our lives. As a kid, I was discouraged, man. I was discouraged. My dad didn't build me up. My dad tried to destroy me. But praise God, my dad is now saved. Now I have a relationship with my father, and God's done a great and mighty work. But the whole thing is, we can't allow ourselves to discourage our children. The, old, the Lord is the ultimate example of a parent, as he is driven by love, always willing to forgive, and filled with abundant grace. That's him. If we're blessed to be parents, let's give our kids our best as we model our Heavenly Father in their lives. What do we do to be a parent? Just be like God. Treat your children the way God treats you. Hold them accountable. Give them expectations. Love them unconditionally. Be willing to forgive them. Be willing to go the extra mile. Look at the love that God has. He goes beyond the limits to reach us. How many of us were rebellious from God, pushing him away, angry at him, maybe even cursing his name, yet he still came and broke through the wall and saved us? Amen. Amen. I mean, think about it. That's who we're supposed to be. And some people, you know what? You know, and they give up on their kids. Man, don't give up on your kids. Love them to the end. You give everything you possibly can. But understand, they also they have personal accountability. It's not our job to carry our children through life. It is our job to give them a foundation, and then they have to stand up on their own, but we're always there to support them. That's the desire, and that's the way God works to push us to be better. Today we talked about reverencing God's name, honoring God's day, and following God's example in how to parent. The instructions are clear. <laughs> the question is, will we follow the commandments of God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today, and I thank you for this opportunity we've had to hear from your word. And God, thank you for the blessings and the truth and the examples that you've given us. 
I thank you, God, for the work you've done in my life over the years, and Lord, what you're continually and currently doing in my life. I praise you for that. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that we might truly, God, uh, reverence you, Father. Help us to reverence your name. Help us to reverence your day. And God, help us to look at that example that you set, Father, and help us to parent and love our kids as you would, Lord. Teach them to respect us, respect others, and more importantly, and most importantly, respect you. With their heads bowed and their eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I, I don't know if I'm a child of God. I believe in God. I know about God. It's great to have knowledge of God. It's great to believe in God. All those things are wonderful. That's who kind of I was before. But 18 years ago, God gave me a revelation, which was this. I did not have a relationship with him. And when I talked about being a born-again child of God, those are people that have a relationship with God. If you believe in God, but you've never personally met him, and the fact that you've never given your life to Christ, then guess what? You're a child of disobedience. You are a lost person in need of a Savior. But the good news is that God loved us. And like we talked about a moment ago, he went to the nth degree to reach us. And when Jesus went on that cross, he saw you wherever you are, overflow, internet, wherever. He saw you. He knew your name. And when he took that last breath, when he said, it is finished, and he paid the price for the sins of the world, he had you in mind. But the thing is, he's done his part. He's offered the gift of salvation to you. You have to choose to receive it. Because even if it's for you, if you don't receive it, it is not yours. Salvation is a choice. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. And the way you receive that gift is through simply praying by faith, trusting Christ, and receiving him as your Savior. I'll give you that opportunity right now. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray out loud. If you want to receive Christ, you can pray in your mind, in your heart. God sees it. It's not a special prayer. It's nothing magic about the prayer. It's not that. It's the intention of the heart. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, pray this prayer in your heart and mind. And if you are sincere, I make you a promise. God will save you. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior personally, Pray this prayer in your heart and mind, sincerely to God. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done plenty of things wrong. I've hurt others. I've hurt myself. And I've hurt you. And I come today to tell you that I'm sorry. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, to apply your blood to my sin debt and save my soul. God, come into my heart. I turn from my previous life and I accept you as my savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray.